Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 151, The Zormites and the Ramiamton. I love these series of chapters that we have here in Alma. We have chapters 26 through 29 that are, I call them the joy chapters that teaches us what joy truly is. That joy comes from Jesus Christ and the redemption of others and the redemption of you. And then we have chapters 30, which is the antithesis of joy. Or in other words, it gives us an example of an antichrist whose name is Korihor and how everything he taught is attempting to remove Jesus and to remove his redemption from us. We learn of his teachings and his accusations, his arrogance in, in demanding a sign from Alma in order to believe that there is a God. And he did receive a sign. He was stricken and he could no longer speak. So then at that point, he then confesses, that the devil had actually deceived him, that the devil appeared to him in the form of an angel and had said to him to go and reclaim this people, for they have all gone astray after an unknown God. The devil taught Korihor that there was no God. And we learn at the end of chapter 31 that Korihor was actually then left to his own devices, that the devil will not support his children, even when they sacrifice everything on his behalf and when they do his bidding. And this was the case for Korihor. After his encounter with Alma, Korihor was cast out and he went from house to house begging for food. And eventually he makes his way to the land of Antionum which was populated by a people who called themselves the Zoramites. Now, there are some Nephite dissenters who've actually adopted quite a few of Korihor's teachings and, just, and then kind of putting their own spin on things. And I'm sure that Korihor thought that he could find refuge amongst like-minded folks, right? You would assume, you would think, but this wasn't the case for him because it was among them that he was run down and trodden down, even until he was dead. Isn't that interesting? Here was a society that had adopted these Antichrist teachings. And what does this society do? They run him down until he's dead. The messenger who had kind of helped shape all of their beliefs, which when we step back and look at it, it's not really too surprising. We brought up the possibility last in the last episode that when you remove Jesus, what then compels you to watch out for those who are struggling and who are in need? Especially if you don't believe that there's a God, so you're not even looking at them with uh, any seeing any divinity in them, seeing them as a child of God. There, if there's no remission for our sins, what is to prick our hearts and to help us set our sights on holier practices? If we don't have that, then we do adopt this belief that whatsoever we do is right and is fine. And then if there was no commandment urging us to love God and love our neighbors, what would compel us to reach out to them? And then take the Antichrist teaching. 
in which you believe that man succeeds by his own management, his own genius and his own strength. And so perhaps we might believe, we might look at Korahor and believe he deserved his lot, that he wasn't smart enough to figure out how to take care of himself and how to not get caught by Alma and the chief judge. We might even see that he doesn't even have any more value to give. He can't speak anymore. He's completely given himself up. Maybe we're even disgusted that he admitted that the devil had deceived him. Maybe we look at him as a sellout or a betrayer. The Zormites themselves had fallen into great errors. They had dissented from the Nephites, not only in belief, but they were now following a man named Zoram. He was now their leader. And they had chosen not to observe or keep the commandments of God and his statutes according to the law of Moses. They were changing things up there. And also they weren't observing the performances of the church that counseled them to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily. And I just want to note that not only are these direct teachings of the Antichrist, but these are always the first stages of apostasy in any of God's children. When we stop keeping his commandments and we stop praying to him daily, and just a reminder, if we back up a bit, the word supplication, I think is really important that it's used here because supplication means to beg or plead for something earnestly and humbly. So it's not just praying to God, but it's stopping in and having that daily petition to him for forgiveness. So the Zoramites, they had built up synagogues that they gathered to once a week. But in the middle of these synagogues were these high stands that they built, and they would climb up upon them. And it was only done one, one at a time. There was just enough room for one person at the top. And they would raise their hands high towards heaven, and they would say a memorized prayer. And the stand was called the Ramiumpton, which Mormon tells us means holy stand. And whenever I study this chapter, my mind flashes back to, okay, how old was I in the ninth grade? 14? Okay, so my mind flashes back over 30 years <laughs> to my seminary teacher who stood up, I think it was his desk. I don't even think it was his chair. I think it was on his desk to raise his hand, just kind of give us an impression of, you know, what this might have looked like. It woke up some 14-year-olds, that's for sure. But in their prayers, they would recite the following beliefs. First, they addressed God as the holy, holy God. But they go on to say that they know that he is just a spirit and that he will always be a spirit. Isn't that interesting? So they're denying his divinity, and they're also denying their own creation of being made in his own image, which then is diminishing their divinity. They go on to and say they believe that God has separated them from their brethren, the Nephites, that he had a hand in doing that, and that they did not believe in the Nephites' tradition, which had been handed down, okay, get this insult, by the childishness of their fathers. Wow right? <laughs> they prayed that they believed that God had elected them to be his holy children. Oh yeah, and also they stated that God had revealed to them that there shall be no Christ. So can you hear all of the prophecies of horror horror? You hear the belief echo that the Nephites are foolish, 
that they are following foolish traditions of their fathers and foolish prophecies, that ancient priests had made up these foolish ordinances and performances to kind of keep them down and to kind of keep them in bondage, and that there would be no Christ. So they go on to say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which is a true characteristic of his. And they say that he had elected the Zoramites, that they will be the ones saved and all the others around them have been elected to be cast down to hell, which is a really interesting belief that God would randomly just choose a people and because of their belonging to the group, he would determine that that group would have salvation and belonging to another casts you down to hell. That's not quite how God works. That's a distortion, really, of being God's chosen people, isn't it? Because we know that we have to make covenants with God in order to even be considered his, his people. And none of us, even once we've made those covenants, none of us get a free pass. We're, none of us are guaranteed a spot. We have some responsibility in the matter. We have to keep our end of the covenant. So they go on to thank God for electing them and sparing them from the foolish traditions of their brethren, traditions that bind them down to a belief in Christ. And they claim that it's this tradition, this binding their hearts to God, that actually have led the Nephites away from God. And then they wrap up their prayer, thanking God once again that they are a chosen and a holy people. Okay. So once they say this prayer, they then return to their homes and Alma observed that they would never speak of God again until they would assemble themselves together and upon the holy stand again the following week. And we mentioned, and we mentioned this last time too, the curiosity even of once you eliminate the daily religious observances, the performances, the ordinances, what wins your heart? What takes claim over it? How do you spend your time? Where do your thoughts travel and what do they linger upon? What what claims your love and your devotion? And then what do you do with your time? How do you spend it? So Alma saw that the Zoramites were a wicked and perverse people, that their hearts were set upon gold and upon silver and upon all manner of fine goods. He noticed how their hearts were lifted up even unto great boasting. Yeah, that prayer, Right? lifting themselves above others in their pride. And he also observed that that they're proclaiming to be God's elect people, that they were actually in a state of wickedness and infidelity. And I thought the word infidelity was really interesting that that was used, but they are actually being unfaithful to God. They claim to love him, but they deny his true characteristics. They're denying then his power and his words even. And they've called those words foolish. Instead, they love themselves and they love the great and the vain things that the world has to offer them. And they only devote this small little portion of their time and themselves to him, to God. The Zoramites were an example of an antichrist society. And I believe we live in an antichrist world these beliefs of the Zormites and Korihor, they are found 
everywhere in our world. The belief that you can't know of things to come. The belief in being a self-made man and the focus on high achievement. The belief in moral relativism. The belief in special people, the elites. The belief to see Christ's ways as nice, but not always effective or strong or powerful. To deny God's divinity or even his influence over us, or the need for us to adhere to commandments, the belief that to be free is actually to be without obligation to God, and to then embark on our own spiritual journey, exploring all kinds of different philosophies, and then picking and choosing what works for us until we have our own little potpourri of preferred practices that will follow. Or even take up the way that we covet time as a people, the way we don't like to give up too much of our time to help someone in need. It might just take too much time to attend church that there's just not enough time on Sundays because Sundays are our time. Or the overt love and idolization that we have for the glamour life. I mean, look at Instagram, right? The fancy pictures of exotic vacations and and the rich and the enchanting foods that you can make and eat. The faces that are filtered in order to reach some idealized beauty. The bodies idolized for their perfect shape. And so all the pictures and the videos that show these bodies or the ins and the outs of clothes that are in or that are out. I don't know. We live in an antichrist world. Which is why Alma's prayer in this chapter is really what I want you to focus on and I want to highlight this week. So Alma, he gathered like the dream team of missionaries to go into the Zoramites lands and to teach the word of God. And he took with him Ammon and Aaron and Omner. And we know that they've had tons of success in being missionaries. And he also took Amulek and Zizram who not only has he worked closely with, but who have both really strong conversion stories. And then finally, he took two of his sons, Shiblon and Corianton, with him. And all of these men, they go into the land of Antionum. And before they did, Alma says a prayer. And at the beginning, he says he's grieved because he saw the wickedness and the perverseness of the people. And he wondered to God how long God would suffer that his servants should dwell here in the flesh and behold such gross wickedness among the children of men. And now I don't mean to be lighthearted, and I don't mean to sound condescending to Alma whatsoever. But from our vantage point, we can see that not only is God not in a rush to remove his servants from gross wickedness, But we can testify even how this gross wickedness will expand until it covers the earth and uses all means necessary to convert so many people unto it. And so what will God do? He's not going to remove us from it. So what does he do? He provides for his faithful servants. He will give them strength to endure the afflictions so that we can find comfort in Christ. That's what he does. That's how he shows up. 
and the same thing that Alma prayed and asked God for are the same things that we're in need of in order to be able to survive spiritually living in an antichrist world. And just because we live in that world does not mean our most sacred places like our homes, our churches, our hearts need to be converted to their doctrine, to the world's doctrine. So that's what I want invite you to focus on. Alma's prayer. It begins in verse 26, but it's really in verse 30 that we start to see his faith start to kick in. And Alma opens his heart and he starts asking God to really do something with it. Alma is asking for a change of heart. He's asking God to give him strength so that he can bear with his own infirmities. And I don't know whether Alma felt weak in body or mind. He was asking God for strength with it. And he asked God to comfort his soul in Christ. And that comfort, the best way that I can determine what Alma is meaning and what he's asking for is for God to help him find joy in Christ, in, in Christ's characteristics and the redemption that he offers others in Alma's own personal redemption. Alma also asked for strength so that he can suffer with patience. That's interesting. That We'll talk more about that next week. And that God would give him success along with Alma and his fellow servants. And by the way, did you know that you can pray for success? You don't need to feel that it's you against addiction and it's you against contention or the vain things of this world. You can pray for God to help you succeed against all of these temptations and these obstacles or the circumstances that you face. Alma prayed that he would have the strength to bear his afflictions and that his brethren would be able to bear their afflictions, that they might have success in bringing souls to Christ, that they would have power and wisdom. And what was Alma's motivating reason for engaging in this endeavor in the first place? Why didn't he just let them do them? First, there was some self-preservation. The Nephites were concerned that the Zoramites, who lived in very close proximity to the Lamanites, might strike up some sort of communication and even cooperation. That was always a risk with dissenters. But it was something more than that, too, because Alma mentions it in his prayer. The truth is, is that when we engage with one another, when we're really looking at at others and wanting their best interest, for example, finding joy in their redemption, the Spirit of God communicates to us that despite what's going on for those others, their souls are precious still. And Alma knew that the souls of the Zoramites were precious and that they were still his brethren, whether they thought that or not. That's how Alma was seeing them. So after Alma prayed, he placed his hands upon each of his brethren's head and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And from there they went their separate ways, not worrying about what they were going to eat or drink or what they would wear. Their faith was placed in the Lord that he would provide for them because that's what the Lord does. He doesn't remove us from the circumstance, but he does provide for us either the strength or the wisdom or the courage, that's what he does. That's what he brings to the party. And so that's the challenge that I give you this week. I know you have worries. And I know you have really good reason to worry about your worries. 
But I offer up the thought that your worrying isn't serving you, actually. Worrying about the choices of others and the unexpected circumstances that you find yourself in the middle of and the fear that you aren't measuring up and the, and the judgment that you're having towards others or even self-judgment, all of that worrying, it's actually causing a lot of unnecessary pain, pain that feels very overwhelming to your, to your mortal frame. I believe it's exactly how Alma felt at the beginning of his prayer. It all just felt too much to him. It felt overbearing to him. But what I invite you to do is to, instead of getting upon a holy stand like the Zoramites and being high in the air, called the Ramiumpton, doing it for all to see, I invite you to find a holy place to kneel in supplication and humility, and to commune with God very privately. Be like Alma and just place the problem in God's hands. You see, Alma switched from grief and fear at the beginning of his prayer to empowerment once he begins to call upon God to equip him with the tools that he needs in order to be able to go and do his work, to do his purpose, or the Lord's purpose among the Zoramites. And from there on out, you see Alma, he's asking for strength, comfort, patience, success, power, wisdom. Don't you need all of that too? So what is it you need? What tender mercies does your circumstance require from you in order for you to be able to not only get through it, but to keep still holding on to your divinity and the power that that gives you? We see that God doesn't remove the circumstances, but his miracle does come in his strengthening us to progress despite the circumstances. And I actually think it's really an important part of our learning here to to assess and evaluate and then ask him for what the specific tools are or the mercies are that we stand in need of in order to be able to come off conqueror. I think there is something in that, that we become better stewards of our agency when we can observe what mercies and power we need from God in order to do our work. Where the natural man first thinks that the problem that he's encountering needs to be solved with force to to search, to take a moment and then to search our hearts and then ask to be able to have a listening ear instead can be probably exactly what the situation calls for in order to be successful. Where we sometimes believe that we need to go in demanding and strong, searching our hearts And then praying for a heart that can seek to understand and de-escalate the crisis may be what gets us where we want to go. Alma teaches us that preaching the word of God had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just. It had a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else. So praying for godly attributes and wisdom to endure and then thrive within our circumstances in his name, doing that all in the name of Jesus Christ is an essential step in rolling with the tempests that we're right in the middle of. 
And then once we pray our prayer, what is it that we do then? Do we just sit on the edge of our bed waiting until we feel strength and comfort and patience and success and power and wisdom? No, (laughs) no. We get up and we go to work acting in faith as if God has already given us what we've asked for. So I really truly believe that once Alma placed his hands, the scriptures actually said clapped his hands upon their heads and they were filled with the spirit, that they just went forth, not doubting that they were going forth in strength and comfort and patience and success and power and wisdom. They acted as one would act who already possessed those blessings. And then the spirit delivered, the Lord provided, all because they prayed in faith for them. It's like the faith precedes the miracle. This is a perfect example of that. And that's what I invite you to do this week. Before I go, guess what? I have a new podcast. It's called Learn, Like, and Enlift. And it's a podcast that combines gospel truths and life coaching tools to help you in your personal journey of becoming. You basically get to have me as your personal coach who's cheering you on as you seek strength from the true and the everlasting source of all good things. So let's learn how to create what you want and then how to go after it in true confidence form. And I also invite you to join me on Instagram at Carrie Hickenlooper Coaching, where we'll continue the discussion there. I really ask you to join me prepared to engage, not just to consume the content, but to add your content to it, to faithfully engage in the conversation, even using it as a platform to commit to a better way of moving forward. Use it as a place where you are, you're putting your intentions out there. Answer the questions that I pose there. Give us updates as to how you're experimenting, not only with the doctrine, but with the coaching tools also how it's changing you and how things are coming together. And then also on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m., I invite you to join me for the check-in. It's a live that I'll put up each Thursday reviewing the episode that had happened just that week. Okay, go and do great things this week. And I hope to see you on Instagram. Take care.